Chapter Eight, Part One of Laddie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Laddie by Jean Stratton Porter. Chapter Eight, Part One. The Shropshire and the Crusader. For among the rich and gay, fine and grand, and decked in laces, none appear more glad than they, with happier hearts or happier faces. Every one told mother for a week before the wedding that she would be sick when it was over, and sure enough she was. She had been on her feet too much, and had so many things to think about, and there had been such a dreadful amount of work for her and Candace, even after all the neighbors helped, that she was sick in bed, and we couldn't find a thing she could eat, until she was almost wild with hunger, and father seemed as if he couldn't possibly bear it a day longer. After Candace had tried everything she could think of, I went up and talked it over with Sarah Hood, and she came down, pretending she happened in, and she tried thickened milk, toast, and mulled buttermilk. She kept trying for two days before she gave up. Candace thought of new things, and Mrs. Freshett came and made all the sick dishes she knew, but mother couldn't even taste them, so we were pretty blue, and we nearly starved ourselves, for how could we sit and eat everything you could mention? And mother lying there, almost crying with hunger. Saturday morning, I was hanging around her room, hoping maybe she could think of some least little thing I could do for her, even if no more than to bring a glass of water, or a late rose to lay on her pillow. It would be better than not being able to do anything at all. After a while, she opened her eyes and looked at me, and I scarcely knew her. She smiled the bravest she could, and said, Sorry for mother, dear? I nodded. I couldn't say much. And she tried harder than ever to be cheerful, and asked, What are you planning to do today? If you can't think of one thing I can do for you, guess I'll go fishing, I said. Her eyes grew brighter, and she seemed half interested. Why, little sister, she said, if you can catch some of those fish like you do sometimes, I believe I could eat one of them. I never had such a bee hanged time getting started. I slipped from the room. And never told a soul even where I was going. I fell over the shovel and couldn't find anything quick enough but my pocket to put the worms in, and I forgot my stringer. At last, when I raced down the hill to the creek and climbed over the water of the deep place, on the roots of the peat billings yowling tree, I had only six worms my apple sucker pole, my cotton cord line, and bent pin hook. I put the first worm on carefully, and if ever I prayed, Sometimes it was hard to understand about this praying business. My mother was the best and most beautiful woman who ever lived. She was clean and good, and always helped the poor and needy who cluster round your door, like it says in the poetry piece. And there never could have been a reason why God would want a woman to suffer herself when she went flying on horseback, even dark nights through rain or snow, to doctor other people's pain, and when she gave away things like she did. Why, I've seen her take a big piece of meat from the barrel, and a sack of meal, and heaps of apples and potatoes to carry to Mandy Thomas. When she gave away food by the wagon load at a time, God couldn't have wanted her to be hungry, and yet she was that very minute almost crying for food. And I prayed, oh, how I did pray! And a sneaking old back ended crayfish took my very first worm. I just looked at the sky and said, Well, when it's for a sick woman, Can't you do any better than that? I suppose I shouldn't have said it. But if it had been your mother, how would you have felt? I pinched the next worm in two, so if a crayfish took that, it wouldn't get but half. 
I lay down across the roots, and pulled my bonnet far over my face, and tried to see the bottom. I read in school the other day, and by those little rings on the water I know, the fishes are merrily swimming below. There were no rings on the water, but after a while I saw some fish darting around. Only they didn't seem to be hungry, for they would come right up and nibble a tiny bit at my worm, but they wouldn't swallow it. Then one did, so I jerked with all my might, jerked so hard the fish and worm both flew off, and I had only the hook left. I put on the other half and tried again. I prayed straight along, but the tears would come that time, and the prayer was no powerful effort like Brother Hastings would have made. It was little torn-up pieces mostly. Oh, Lord, please do make only one fish bite. At last one did bite good, so I swung carefully that time, and landed it on the grass. But it was so little, and it hit a stone and was killed. I had no stringer to put it back in the water to keep cool, and the sun was hot that day, like times in the fall. Stretched on the roots, with it shining on my back, and striking the water, and coming up from below, I dripped with heat and excitement. I threw that one away, put on another worm, and a big turtle took it, the hook, and broke my line, and almost pulled me in. I wouldn't have let go if it had, for I just had to have a fish. There was no help from the Lord in that, so I quit praying, only what I said when I didn't know it. Father said man was born a praying animal, and no matter how wicked he was, if he had an accident, or saw he had just got to die, he cried aloud to the Lord for help and mercy before he knew what he was doing. I could hear the roosters in the barnyard, the turkey gobbler, and the old gander screamed once in a while, and sometimes a bird sang a skimpy little fall song. Nothing like spring, except the killdeers and larks. They were always good to hear. And then the dinner bell rang. I wished I had been where I couldn't have heard that, because I didn't intend going home until I had a fish that would do for mother, if I stayed until night. If the best one in the family had to starve, we might as well all go together. But I wouldn't have known how hungry I was, if the bell hadn't rung, and told me the others were eating. So I bent another pin and tried again. I lost the next worm without knowing how, and then I turned baby and cried right out loud. I was so thirsty, the salty tears running down my cheeks tasted good, and doing something besides fishing sort of rested me. So I looked around, and up at the sky, wiped my face on the skirt of my sunbonnet, and put on another worm. I had only one more left, and I began to wonder if I could wade in and catch a fish by hand. I did teeny ones sometimes, but I knew the water there was far above my head, for I had measured it often with the pole. It wouldn't do to try that. Instead of helping mother any, a funeral would kill her, too. So I fell back on the crusaders, and tried again. Strange how thinking about them helped. I pretended I was fighting my way to the holy city, and this was the Jordan, just where it met the sea, and I had to catch enough fish to last me during the pilgrimage west, or I'd never reach Jerusalem to bring home a shell for the Stanton crest. I pretended so hard that I got braver and stronger, and asked the Lord more like there was some chance of being heard. All at once there was a jerk that almost pulled me in, so I jerked too, and a big fish flew over my head and hit the bank behind me with a thump. Of course, by a big fish, I don't mean a red horse so long as my arm, like the boys bring from the river. I mean the biggest fish I ever caught with a pin in our creek. It looked like the whale that swallowed Jonah, as it went over my head. I laid the pole across the roots, jumped up and turned, 
and I had to grab the stump to keep from falling in the water and dying. There lay the fish, the biggest one I ever had seen. But it was flopping wildly, and it wasn't a foot from a hole in the grass where a muskrat had burrowed through. If it gave one flop that way, it would slide down the hole straight back into the water. And between me and the fish stood our cross old Shropshire ram. I always looked to see if the sheep were in the meadow before I went to the creek. But that morning I had been so crazy to get something for mother to eat, I never once thought of them. And there it stood. That ram hadn't been cross at first, and father said it never would be if treated right and not teased, and if it were, there would be trouble for all of us. I was having more than my share that minute, and it bothered me a lot almost every day. I never dared enter a field any more if it were there, and now it was stamping up and down the bank, shaking its head, and trying to get me. With one flop, the fish went almost in the hole, and the next a little away from it. Everything put together, I thought I couldn't stand it. I never wanted anything as I wanted that fish, and I never hated anything as I hated that sheep. It wasn't the sheep's fault either. Leon teased it on purpose, just to see it chase Polly Martin. But that was more her doings than his. She was a widow, and she crossed our front meadow going to her sister's. She had two boys big as Laddie. And three girls. And father said they lived like the lilies of the field. They toiled not, neither did they spin. They never looked really hungry or freezing. But they never plowed or planted. They had no cattle or pigs or chickens. Only a little corn for meal, and some cabbage, and wild things they shot for meat. And coons to trade the skins for more powder and lead. Bet they ate the coons. Never any new clothes, never clean, they or their house. Once when father and mother were driving past, they saw Polly at the well, and they stopped for politeness sake to ask how she was, like they always did with everyone. Polly had a tin cup of water, and was sopping at her neck with a carpet rag, and when mother asked, How are you, Mrs. Martin? she answered, Oh, I ain't very well this spring. I guessed I got the go-backs. Mother said Polly looked as if she'd been born with the go-backs, and had given them to all her children, her home, garden, fields, and even the fences. We hadn't a particle of patience with such people. When you are lazy like that, it is very probable that you'll live to see the day when your children will peep through fence cracks and cry for bread. I have seen those Martin children come mighty near doing it when the rest of us opened our dinner baskets at school. And if mother hadn't always put in enough so that we could divide, I bet they would. If Polly Martin had walked up as if she were alive and had been washed and neat and going somewhere to do someone good, Leon never would have dreamed of such a thing as training the Shropshire to bunt her. She was so long and skinny, always wore a ragged shawl over her head, a floppy old dress that the wind whipped out behind, and when she came to the creek she sat astride the footlog and hunched along with her hands. That tickled the boys so, Leon began teasing the sheep on purpose to make it get her. But inasmuch as she saw fit to go abroad looking so funny, that any one could see she'd be a perfect circus if she were chased. I didn't feel that it was Leon's fault. If, like the little busy bee, she had improved each shining hour, he never would have done it. Seems to me she brought the trouble on her own head. First, Leon ran at the Shropshire, and then jumped aside. But soon it grew so strong and quick he couldn't manage that, so he put his hat on a stick, and poked it back and forth through a fence crack, and that made the ram raving mad. At last it would butt the fence until it would knock itself down, and if he dangled the hat again, get right up and do it over. 
Father never caught Leon, so he couldn't understand what made the sheep so dreadfully cross, because he had thought it was quite peaceable when he bought it. The first time it got after Polly, she threw her shawl over its head, pulled up her skirts, and Leon said she hit just eleven high places crossing an eighty-acre field. She came to the house crying, and Father had to go after her shawl, and Mother gave her a roll of butter and a cherry pie to comfort her. The Shropshire never really got Polly, but anyone could easily see what it would do to me if I dared step around that stump, and it was dancing and panting to begin. If whoever wrote that gentle sheep, pray tell me why piece, ever had seen a sheep acting like that, it wouldn't have been in the books. At least I think it wouldn't, but one can't be sure. He proved that he didn't know much about anything outdoors, or he wouldn't have said that sheep were eating grass and daisies white, from the morning till the night, when daisies are bitter as gall. Flop went the fish, and its tail touched the edge of the hole. Then I turned around and picked up the pole. I put my sunbonnet over the big end of it, and poked it at the ram, and drew it back as Leon did his hat. One more jump and mother's fish would be gone. I stood on the roots and waved my bonnet. The sheep lowered its head and came at it with a rush. I drew back the pole, and the sheep's forefeet slid over the edge, and it braced and began to work to keep from going in. The fish gave a big flop and went down the hole. Then I turned crusader and began to fight, and I didn't care if I were whipped black and blue. I meant to finish that old black-faced Shropshire. I set the pole on the back of its neck and pushed with all my might, and I got it in too. My, but it made a splash. It wasn't much good at swimming either, and it had no chance, for I stood on the roots and pushed it down, and hit it over the nose with all my might, and I didn't care how far it came on the cars or how much money it cost. It never would chase me and make me lose my fish again. I didn't hear him until he splashed under the roots, and then I was so mad I didn't see that it was Laddie. I only knew that it was someone who was going to help out that miserable ram. So I struck with all my might, the sheep when I could hit it, if not the man. "'You little demon, stop!' cried Laddie. I got in a good one right on the ram's nose. Then Laddie dropped the sheep and twisted the fish-pole from my fingers, and I pushed him as hard as I could, but he was too strong. He lifted the sheep, pulled it to the bank, and rolled it, worked its jaws, and squeezed water from it, and worked and worked. "'I guess you've killed it,' he said at last. "'Goody!' I shouted. "'Goody! Oh, but I am glad it's dead!' "'What on earth has turned you to a fiend?' asked Laddie, beginning to work on the sheep again. "'That ram!' I said. "'Ever since Leon made it cross, so it would chase Polly Martin, it's got me oftener than her. I can't go anywhere for it. And today it made me lose a big fish, and Mother is waiting. She thought maybe she could eat some.' Then I roared, but I sounded like Bashan's bull. "'Dear Lord,' said Laddie, dropping the sheep and taking me in his wet arms. "'Tell me, Biddy, tell me how it is.' Then I forgot I was a crusader, and told him all about it as well as I could for choking. And when I finished he bathed my hot face and helped me from the roots. Then he went and looked down the hole I showed him, and he cried out quick-like, and threw himself on the grass, and in a second up came the fish.' Someone had rolled a big stone in the hole, so the fish was all right, not even dead yet, and Laddie said it was the biggest one he ever had seen taken from the creek. Then he said if I'd forgive him and all our family for spoiling the kind of a life I had a perfect right to lead, and if I'd run to the house and get a big bottle from the medicine case quick, he would see to it that some place was fixed for that sheep where it would never bother me again. 
so I took the fish and ran as fast as I could. But I sent May back with the bottle, and did the scaling myself. No one at our house could do it better, for Laddie taught me the right way long ago, when I was small, and I'd done it hundreds of times. Then I went to Candace, and she put a little bit of butter and a speck of lard in a skillet, and cooked the fish brown. She made a slice of toast, and boiled a cup of water, and carried it to the door. Then she went in and set the table beside the bed, and I took in the tray and didn't spill a drop. Mother never said a word. She just reached out and broke off a tiny speck and nibbled it, and it stayed. She tried a little bigger piece, and another, and she said, Take out the bones, Candace. She ate every scrap of that fish like the hungriest traveler who ever came to our door, and the toast, and drank the hot water. Then she went into a long sleep, and all of us walked tiptoe. And when she waked up she was better, and in a few days she could sit in her chair again, and she began getting Shelley ready to go to music school. I have to tell you the rest, too. Laddie made the ram come alive, and father sold it the next day for more than he paid for it. He said he hoped I'd forgive him for not having seen how it had been bothering me, and that he never would have had it on the place a day if he'd known. The next time he went to town, he bought me a truly little cane rod, a real fishing line, several hooks, and a red bobber too lovely to put into the water. I thought I was a great person from the fuss all of them made over me, until I noticed Laddie shrug his shoulders and reach back and rub one, and then I remembered. I went flying, and thank goodness, he held out his arms. Oh, Laddie, I never did it, I cried. I never, never did. I couldn't. Laddie, I love you best of anyone. You know I do. Of course you didn't, said Laddie. My little sister wasn't anywhere around when that happened. That was a poor little girl I never saw before, and she was in such trouble she didn't know what she was doing. And I hope I'll never see her again, he ended, twisting his shoulder. But he kissed me and made it all right. And really, I didn't do that. I just simply couldn't have struck Laddie. Marrying off Sally was little worse than getting Shelley ready for school. She had to have three suits of everything, and a new dress of each kind, and three hats. Her trunk wouldn't hold all there was to put in it, and Father said he never could pay the bills. He had promised her to go, and he didn't know what in this world to do because he never had borrowed money in his life, and he couldn't begin, for if he died suddenly, that would leave mother in debt, and they might take the land from her. That meant he'd spent what he had in the bank on Sally's wedding, and all that was in the underground station, or maybe the station money wasn't his. Just when he was awfully bothered, mother said to never mind, she believed she could fix it. She sent all of us into the orchard to pick the finest apples that didn't keep well, and father made three trips to town to sell them. She had big jars of lard she wouldn't need before butchering time came again, and she sold dried apples, peaches, and raspberries from last year. She got lots of money for barrels of feathers she'd saved to improve her feather beds and pillows. She said she would see to that later. Father was so tickled to get the money to help him out that he said he'd get her a pair of those wonderful new blue geese like Pryor's had that everyone stopped to look at. When there was not quite enough yet, from somewhere mother brought out money that she'd saved for a long time, from butter and eggs, and chickens, and turkeys, and fruit and lard, and things that belonged to her. Father hated to use it in the worst way, but she said she'd saved it for an emergency, and now seemed to be the time. She said if the child really had talent, she should be about developing it, 
and while there would be many who would have far finer things than Shelley, still she meant her to have enough that she wouldn't be the worst-looking one, and so ashamed she couldn't keep her mind on her work. Father said, with her face it didn't make any difference what she wore, and Mother said that was just like a man. It made all the difference in the world what a girl wore. Father said maybe it did to the girl, and to other women. What he meant was that it made none to a man. Mother said the chief aim and end of a girl's life was not wrapped up in a man. And father said maybe not with some girls, but it would be with Shelley. She was too pretty to escape. I do wonder if I'm going to be too pretty to escape when I put on long dresses. Sometimes I look in the glass to see if it's coming. But I don't suppose it's any use. Mother says you can't tell a thing at the growing age about how a girl is going to look at eighteen. End of chapter 8, part 1